First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Berlusconi flatly denies that any mafia money helped him to get a start in this. I have I've always had a thing for black people. I like black people. I'm telling you, these stories are funnier than, than the jokes you can tell. And I said, what the fuck is a brain scientist? I was like, that's not a real job. Tell me the truth. But anyway. Okay. And we're back on Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm joined by my friends. Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. And uh, Yogi is out this week, but we're actually today doing a spiritual sequel to the Michael Milken episode we did, which uh, I'm proud of. If you haven't heard of it, you might want to check it out. But uh, the Michael Milken episode, to give you the cliff notes, uh, basically in the 1980s, uh, Michael Milken is still a billionaire. He was running a junk bond empire, which was a giant Ponzi scheme on top of a, a, a large insider trading ring, and he got prosecuted, did a couple years in jail. And um, I guess when I say a spiritual sequel, would you believe that endemic insider trading on Wall Street did not go away no. after Michael Milken was what? arrested no. and charged? And that's why the story of Stephen A. Cohen is the story of, like, I mean, by returns, literally the most successful hedge fund trader in history— and there's really no explanation for his success that does not involve a ton of illegal insider trading. Also, if you're wondering how the Michael Milken episode uh, ended, he uh, changed careers and uh, became a geodesic dome. <laughs> the man has a very smooth head, <laughs> which he uses uh, for ramming potential competitors for mates. Yeah, or he shines it up. Yeah, and that blinds them. Michael Milken is regularly followed around by camera crews gri- guided by David Attenborough <laughs> <laughs> to observe his mating <laughs> rituals. Um, but you know, so I read this book, Black Edge, uh, by Sheila Kolhatker, Kolhatker, um, and and I think it is also the spiritual sequel to the book Den of Thieves, which is the book about Michael Milken. And Black Edge is about primarily Stephen A. Cohen. Uh, Stephen Cohen. Uh, according to Forbes, as of June 2019, is worth about $12.8 billion. Extremely wealthy person. Uh, but Black Edge also deals with the hedge fund industry in general. And uh, Sheila Kolhatkar, she actually quotes a trader in the book, uh, a stock trader, and he says, uh, she asks him if he knew of any, any hedge fund that didn't traffic in illegal inside information. And this trader responded, quote, no, they would never survive. And they make the analogy to, like, steroids in baseball or, you know, uh, doping and cycling or whatever it is, where it's like, clearly the big-time hedge funds are doing trading and inside illegal information. So if you want to keep up with them, you have to do it as well, you know. And uh, it is just something at the heart of our financial system where uh, you... If you are trying to day trade stocks or whatever the case may be, uh, you are walking into a rigged casino. Mm. And there's very little attempt to, I guess in the case of Stephen Cohen, we have someone who got caught and then he almost got punished. The the main difference is that uh, counting cards is legal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The thing is, like, when we talk about, you know, these insider traders or just people on Wall Street in general, I think uh, before we get to the biography of Stephen Cohen, one thing I do want to emphasize is 
you know, these people are not really that much, if at all, smarter than you or me or anybody on the street. It's just, if you look at the story of Steve Cohen or Raj Rajaratnam was another former billionaire who got convicted on insider trading. He actually got caught because he was very sloppy on the wiretaps, whereas Stephen Cohen was much more careful about that. Can't sleep on the wiretaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just don't be explicit on the phone when you're insider trading is the main lesson of Stephen Cohen's life. Um, but the the point I was making was also if you're the boss, uh, don't don't let anyone refer to you as the boss. Have a fake boss. Uh, walk around in a robe. <laughs> uh, pee in public. Make uh, everyone think you're crazy. The Vinny the Chin Gigante rule. Yeah. Of uh, insider trading. <laughs> yeah. Is always act like a fucking dementia patient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While you're uh, shorting Alzheimer's drug test results. Um, so. The, the point I was making here is essentially these people are not really that much smarter, if at all. In many cases, they're quite a bit dumber than, than the average person you'll meet off the street. It's just the simple fact of the matter is uh, Raj Rajaratnam and Steve Cohen went to Wharton Business School. At Wharton Business School, they made a bunch of contacts who just happened to like, because it is, you know, the premier business school in the country, those contacts just happened to go on to all of the major publicly traded companies. Oh, did anyone famous go there? <laughs> yeah. These people, go, they Trump. run in such like narrow social, sur- like they're pretty much bred from, from the time of middle school to do what they do. Mm-hmm. And so they have very narrow social circles that expand to like a very extensive one later, but with like relatively similar backgrounds and they just uh, do quasi to actual insider trading right? in order to beat index funds. Exactly. <laughs> and I think we've made this argument on the, on the show before, which like the only way you're actually going to beat, they say, you know, 8% over the long run average return of just sticking your money in an S&P 500 index fund. The only way you're going to beat that 8% consistently is to insider trade. To know non-public information. Or invest in gold. Yes. <laughs> or or check out our new sponsor, <laughs> webuygold.com. <laughs> uh, but, but I guess the point... We did w- some demographic research, and it turns out uh, everyone who listens to this is over 80 and stupid. The only way to beat the market is, to buy in, is by t- investing in reverse mortgages once you retire. <laughs> Look... We all know the only way to beat the market is insider trade or buy our new initial coin offering, the Grubstakers coin. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we stole the white paper from a Chinese company. Yes, it is tied to Goatsy coin. Look, We, We accept Libra. Look, we set up a Delaware shell company, which is in turn owned by a Cayman's Island shell company. (laughs) And if you just send your credit card information or a money order to this LLC black box, you will receive the Grubstakers coin. In fact, if you just send us like uh, your routing number and bank account... Um, but but I guess my point was, you know, Raj Rajaratnam, Steve Cohen, they both went to Wharton School of Business and, you know, this premier business school. It's kind of similar to people who go to uh, Harvard Business or, or whatever Ivy um, business schools is that they go on to work in these public companies and the people you'll meet in college will happen to have a lot of inside proprietary information. So it is what happened with Steve Cohen and Raj Rajaratnam was they were able to use these networks to set up 
you know, five or seven or however many people where it's like, okay, I have a tip on this company, I'll share it with the group. And in exchange, they have a tip on this company, they'll share it with the group. So it's like, it's, you don't get rich. And also, Jeffrey Epstein saw me having sex with teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) My point is you don't get rich trading stocks because you're smarter than the average person. And that's, you know, what's really kind of beaten into our heads with, you know, whatever capitalist propaganda is that Mm. the rich are so much smarter than the rest of us. And it's like when it comes to actually beating the stock market, it's just entirely about what network you end up in. Because there's, yeah, there's no way to consistently do it without inside information. You're really just beating off the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess uh, uh, to talk about one example of this is from the book Black Edge. Uh, uh, she actually has uh, emails from five traders. Uh, uh, several, A couple of them worked for SAC Capital, which was Steve Cohen's company. And uh, she has an email that they sent to the others setting up their illegal insider trading <laughs> ring. Uh, so this, this trader sends an email to uh, five other people uh, introducing them to each other to set up this ring. And I'm just going to read directly from it. He says, quote, rule number one about email list. There is no email list. <laughs> and then in parentheses, he says, fight club reference. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case you did not get that reference, <laughs> that this man so much smarter than you, which is why he <laughs> makes a quarter of a million or half a million a year. These are your betters. <laughs> Just accept it. This is what peak performance looks like in, the, in an email form. And I guess just it's m- it's it's so funny how the portrayal of like the hotshot trader in the media is someone who's like really cool and like, <laughs> doesn't give a shit and then it's a guy no. who says in his email fight club reference uh fucking I'm just and like that guy is just relying on like chinese interns to do all of his modeling and stuff yeah andy huh. Co- coffee is for closers glenn gary glenn ross reference <laughs> <laughs> Luke, I am your father. Empire Strikes Back reference. <laughs> I was wondering which movie that was. <laughs> I thought it was Attack of the Clones. Does he also... S- <laughs> he seems like a guy that would sign his name at the end of, like, forum posts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he, had, he definitely had a signature. But it is just like my point is like, you know, a lot of these people are fucking sheltered rich kids who just go to these rich kid networks and they get rich kid connections who go on to like have uh, positions in public companies that are like at the top of the stock market where they get first look at all this very market moving information. So, you know, if there's one thing this episode does, I hope it kind of dispels your idea that these finance hotshots are really that much smarter than you. They're just benefiting from a... the uh, massive system of illegal insider trading we've set up where only very occasionally does the government even attempt to do something about this. And if you're listening to the show, I'm sure you have bought into the idea that (laughs) traders are smarter than you. (laughs) Um, But so two things before we get to the Steve Cohen bio here. Uh, uh, There is something interesting that Black Edge makes the point of, which is insider trading uh, from the Michael Milken episode, the 
throughout the 1980s. Primarily, this was based around mergers and acquisitions. There was like all these corporate raiders and junk bonds and stuff throughout the 80s and all these corporate yeah, takeovers, essentially. So if you buy a stock right before there's an announcement of a giant takeover, obviously, you'll make a lot of money. So insider trading was primarily based around mergers and acquisitions. So they're just leeching off hardworking corporate raiders. Exactly. <laughs> That's sad. Yeah. They were uh, the fucking feeder fish on the side of Carl Icahn. But um, the the point was today it's more based around the quarterlies. And if you uh, happen to amble over to the Reddit forum Wall Street Bets, you can find a, uh, a nice little infographic showing, you know, which corporations will be reporting their quarterly earnings, you know, this week. So quarterly earnings are now the primary, um, uh, let's say, battleground for insider trading. Because if you happen to know what the quarterly earnings will be before they are publicly announced, it's, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. I mean, you do have to estimate what everyone else thinks they will be. So it's not that straightforward. But if you know, it's like very easy to make money, essentially. Well, that's like the raw, the, the quarterly reports are, are, are going to be public, obviously. Right. But the they're sort of, they're the raw material, I guess. Uh, like all of the information that goes into writing those things. Yes. That's the raw material that a lot of insider traders will be using. Mm. So they'll be using profitability of certain products or lines of business within a company that's private until it's reported, aggregated up and, you know, incorporated into one of these reports. So what would, um, what would an insider, how would an inside trader get that kind of information? Um, like you had me watch the pilot to billions <laughs> and besides, um, knowing that Paul Giamatti gets peed on in that show, uh, it's in the first two minutes of the pilot. I'm not spoiling anything. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a guy who, I do like how they were like, how do we make this show about stock trading? Interesting. <laughs> Let's get Giamatti pissed on within two minutes. <laughs> and w- the best part about them casting Giamatti. What about three minutes? No. It's got to be two minutes. <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> They're going to turn it off if they do not see urine splashing on Giamatti's face immediately. And, and it, it's, it's funny that they cast Giamatti so perfectly because as soon as you see the first shot, which is him on the ground with his belt in his mouth, you're <laughs> like, oh, yeah, he's a sub and he's going to get burned and peed on. <laughs> like, who, how, how, he, you're not going to see Paul Giamatti doming someone. No. Unless it's a slapstick. Um, <laughs> Well, so yeah, two points there. Like, how oh, do you? Oh, so oh yeah, so so in the show, in the pilot, uh, one thing they show is a guy uh, bribing uh, a warehouse mm-hmm. dude to show him that you know there are all these units of of uh, wheels, yeah. like car wheels that aren't being sold, uh, and they're just sitting in the warehouse, and so that's how he gets the inside information that they're overproducing. Yeah. So like, and uh, we'll, we'll come back to billions in just one second here, but. Um, there's a lot of different ways of getting the inside information, but of course, you know, we mentioned, you know, you'll have all these classmates if you went to Wharton or Harvard Business or whatever the case may be. You'll have all these classmates who happen to like know things or know a guy who knows a guy. Mm-hmm. You'll have that network going. You'll have, you know, you can bribe people at co- public companies. We'll go through expert networks where you can actually pay a, a third party to set you up with employees at public companies. And then you actually have, uh, which is also portrayed in billions. Um, essentially like just taking people from companies out to party. <laughs> like, uh, if you watch, uh, the other thing, in addition to black edge, there's the frontline documentary to catch a trader, which talks about Steve Cohen. 
and they interview this like former Wall Street trader who worked at like the Galleon Group, and they show this photo of him in Manhattan, like talking about how he would get information, <laughs> and you can see both of his nostrils are like clearly inflated, like he was definitely in the bathroom doing coke somewhere. <laughs> uh, they show this photo of him, and it's like, yeah, you just take you know people, whether they be from other banks or hedge funds or public companies, you take them out on you know the town in Manhattan, you party, you go wherever, you take them out to clubs, restaurants, whatever they happen to be into. And it's actually public because anyone could try to do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Only those who put in the grind of fucking taking yeah. Apple execs <laughs> to scores in New Jersey. <laughs> um, but so, uh, you know, and so like SAC, uh, which is Steve Cohen's firm, they actually like had like a regular budget of taking out Apple and Texas Instrument executives to restaurants, bars, clubs, wherever they want it to go, you know. So no. it's like you will have people at that company who that's their fucking job. Get information that way by showing people a good time. Wait, you mean there's perks to being an Apple executive? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so like it's not uh, far from the image of there being um, a bunch of spreadsheet jo- spreadsheet jockeys mm-hmm. who are doing risk analysis and they're like, that's it. That's how we know they're profitable. And then they they <laughs> they put in the buy order. <laughs> and then that's you know that's what happens. No, it's just like a bunch of stupid shit like this. Where they go out to dinner, well, and then just one of them just divulges that oh actually we're gonna have a good quarterly report. Well, here's or a here, bad one. Here's the thing is I think you know executives at Apple and Texas Instruments are underpaid, and we have to pay them more <laughs> to ensure that they're not gonna be corrupted like this. <laughs> I was just imagining the uh, the trader from the email in question, like losing a bunch of money on a trade and sending out an email like, I could have saved more. <laughs> Schindler's List reference. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did want to, right before we get into the bio of Stephen A. Cohen, uh, I wanted to talk about Billions, the TV show, which like I've watched all four seasons of. It's not actually a good show i mean like there's a lot wrong with it but it's like kind of addictive you know it's like what do you want there's um there's a healthy amount of giamatti yes there's paul giamatti and it is one of the the best parts of it um and he in at least in the pilot he turns the giamatti all the way up Um, but, you know, so in uh, in the show Billions, it's partly based on Steve Cohen's uh, hedge fund, SAC Capital. You know, uh, Axe Capital is based on that. And it's a composite of different hedge fund managers. But, you know, it has Paul Giamatti as the U.S. attorney trying to, like, take down uh, Damian Lewis, who's, like, the, the Steve Cohen figure in the show. And I thought his name was Axelrod. Yeah. Well, that's the actor. Oh, as, oh, okay. But, yeah, Bobby Axelrod is Steve Cohen. Um, and, and so, you know... He's fallen so far from being a band of brothers. <laughs> uh, but but I did want to just uh, make uh, one point of an a- inaccuracy that I found from this book, Black Edge. In the show Billions, if you, if you happen to be a fan or a viewer of it, you might know Wendy Rhodes is Paul Giamatti's wife, and she happens to work as a therapist at this uh, Axe Capital firm. Um, you know, and she, like... She's kind of like a deus ex machina character where she like teaches all the traders how to unlock their inner alpha and be not afraid to like do the insider trading they need to do. She learned at psychiatrist school how to unlock people's absolute worst impulses. (laughs) Well, there is actually a real basis for her character at SAC Capital, but the actual story is, is much funnier and more interesting. So according to the book Black Edge, there was uh, Ari Kiev, 
uh, was a therapist at SAC Capital, um, but he was actually widely hated by all the traders, <laughs> and they viewed him as both a medical fraud and quack and spy for Steve Cohen, <laughs> because Steve Cohen would, of course, like have him like do therapy sessions with any employees he was like worried were like plotting against him or like hiding <laughs> stuff from him, and you know everyone at the firm suspected they were like reporting back to him. And um, interestingly enough, yeah, Steve Cohen would do therapy. Yeah, I would never trust an at-work therapist. <laughs> Steve Cohen would do therapy sessions with this guy, and Cohen's first wife thought he was using therapy sessions with Steve Cohen to get stock tips. <laughs> <laughs> Which I respect a lot more than like just being some fucking <laughs> shitty self-actualization Wall Street asshole therapist. <laughs> <laughs> and he also, uh, uh, Ari Kiev, he, he wrote several books marketing his work with SAC Capital. So it was kind of like, hey, I was the therapist for the best hedge fund. So, <laughs> of course, now I can parlay this into an author uh, deal. And you can look him up on Amazon. They have titles like the, quote, the mental strategies of top traders, unquote. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny where it's like, you know... Uh, they took the idea of like this complete fraud and hack <laughs> and, and made her into a pivotal character in the show who like, you know, we all just need to like sit down with like a therapist who will teach us how to overcome our fears before violating securities <laughs> laws. There's also an interesting uh, side note on Billions where the, the main character or the main trader uh, character is loosely based on a um, an actual guy who was the CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, some, some people might know the stories that most of Cantor Fitzgerald was wiped out on 9-11. Mm -hmm. um, but he survived. They, they were in the planes. They were the hijackers. <laughs> <laughs> it was really aggressive short play against American Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> I... <laughs> It's funny because I, I mentioned this. Uh, we put up the uh, Ragav episode, and I, I think I might have mentioned it, and I might have talked about it in that one mm -hmm. uh, from our old podcast, but I interviewed at Cantor Fitzgerald and going in, I was like, do not bring up 9-11. <laughs> but they were huge douchebags. Um, yeah. But the the CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald, um, he he survived because he was picking up his son from kindergarten. So when it came time to have his son's bar mitzvah, he that, rented that's out. That's what he told the investigators. Yeah. <laughs> he rented, well, and he, he really drove it home by renting out a whole wing of the Met with the um, Temple of Dendor and let kids, uh, for. and so they had to close it for like three days to prepare this bar mitzvah. Hmm. And um, then they had kids... Uh, one of the things they let kids do was drive go-karts around the American colonial wing. <laughs> At first I thought um, the they were driving uh, the carts around the Temple of Dendor, and I was offended. But then when they were like American colonial, I'm like, what are they, okay, fine. What are they going to do? Like break a table that a slave owner used to own? Like who gives a shit? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. But um, I guess if uh, we can start with kind of the biography of Stephen A. Cohen, as we mentioned, you know, $12.8 and, and we mentioned over like 20 years, he was averaging 30% annual returns after fees, mm -hmm. which is unheard of. And again, I would argue impossible without insider trading. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you get to be that person? Well, Steve Cohen, he was born 1956. He grows up in Great Neck, New York, Long Island, third of three ch of eight children. Um, and, you know, this is an affluent suburb is the way it's described in Black Edge. Um, and his uh, maternal grandparents were, were quite wealthy. 
Steve Cohen. He's like the the impression I got of him was essentially um, the lower end of the wealthy spectrum is how he grew up. Um, you know, his like uh, his maternal grandparents drove a Cadillac. They lived in Manhattan off of an investment portfolio of inherited money. You know, so he's he's self-made according to Forbes. Yes, he's like a seven, I think, <laughs> seven or an eight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so his grandparents. But an LA four. Yes. His grandparents lived off uh, an investment portfolio of inherited money, but his uh, his father would take the LIRR into work into Manhattan every day. His father ran a um, uh, 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 Minerva Fashions, which was a dressmaker in the garment district. So he had his own company. His dad did that, uh, according to Black Edge, made $20 dresses for chains like Macy's and JCPenney. His mother was a piano teacher humble origins and all that uh-huh. you know but you know he uh, steve cohen talks about like seeing his father go to work and comparing that to his uh, grandparents who just live off his in their investment portfolio and being like i don't want that kind of life where i actually have to do labor basically <laughs> wait so his grandparents lived off their investment portfolio yes but hit, so his father was downwardly mobile yeah oh okay. sort of i mean he like had his own factory i think he was pretty rich just as far as like the community of great neck they were on the lower end of the rich people who lived in great neck oh yeah yeah. (laughs) that's pretty rich town yeah um but so steve cohen actually starts playing poker in high school he talks about this a lot as like what got him into trading you know i mean it is all a fucking casino uh but you know like according to the book by like the 10th grade they're like they'll win or lose a thousand dollars in a night so he's like playing pretty high stakes poker uh by a young age and um, he, he gets admitted to, to Wharton, you know, University of Pennsylvania School of Business, Wharton. Uh, his parents pay for it. And at Wharton, he, he uh, joins this uh, historical uh, Jewish fraternity called Zeta Beta Tau, um, ZBT. And according to the book, the frat's nickname is Zillions, Billions, Trillions. And it's the wealthier of the Jewish fraternities on campus. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, he spends most of his nights there playing poker in the living room. And um, what I did find interesting about uh, ZBT... It's really about hard work, you know. (laughs) What I did find interesting about ZBT, uh, Zeta, Beta, Tau, is um, uh, the original article for this is down, but just from on uh, Wikipedia, uh, Steve Cohen's exact chapter of ZBT uh, got into a bit of trouble for uh, some, let's say, tasteless racial stuff about 10 years after he graduated. So Steve Cohen graduates Wharton with an economics degree in 1978. Uh, 1988. So you're saying a blackface Christmas party? <laughs> yes, literally that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a Jewish frat, so Hanukkah, but you know. But uh, well, I mean, it was also culturally insensitive to do a Christmas party. <laughs> they, they mocked the deicide. <laughs> uh, according to just Wikipedia, uh, and I get. Um, Uh, In February 1988, the Judicial Inquiry Office of the University of Pennsylvania charged the Zeta Beta Tau fraternity with violating seven Pennsylvania statutes and a University of Pennsylvania guidelines, including sexual and racial harassment during a fraternity rush event on October 1, 1987. The fraternity was accused of hiring two African-American women to perform before an audience of 100 to 200 men during the rush events. While the two women were undressing, the crowd yelled, where did you get them? Guess the word. And other racist remarks. (laughs) So, uh, 
you know, all those photos of politicians and blackface and stuff from the 80s that are coming out. Uh, Steve Cohen was was in this fraternity mm-hmm. about 10 years before they reached that uh, racially sensitive time <laughs> of the 80s. So, you know, I mean, I have no idea what he got up to there. It's just kind of... Uh, and this is racism by Pennsylvania standards. Yes. interestingly enough the university of wisconsin madison chapter in 88 also held a mock slave auction where they had students dress in wigs and blackface and they were sold for their services to other students and abused with racial slurs and the like so this is the zillions billions trillions fraternity on the cutting edge (laughs) of pc culture (laughs) Um, but, you know, hey, who knows what kind of stuff Steve Cohen got up to in college. Apparently, according to the book, he spent most of his time playing poker and taking money from uh, other rich students. Um, but he graduates Wharton with this economics degree in 1978. And uh, same year, he starts working at Gruntel & Co. as uh, a mid-size Wall Street brokerage. Uh, um, and he kind of moves interestingly enough according to the book his uh, childhood friend was running the options department they were doing like options arbitrage which is like now not really possible based on the technology but the idea is you would like find difference in option prices between New York and Chicago stock exchange Mm -hmm. and you would make money by just getting this little 25 cent or 50 cent or a dollar profit on each sure. price difference. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And, you know, technology has since rendered that irrelevant, but that's what they were doing to start out. Um, so they probably like had access to some of the technology that now makes it irrelevant or just a guy in Chicago on the phone, just like more that I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is interesting where like uh, uh, Gruntel is like, <laughs> Throughout the time that he's at Gruntel, it's like there was a Fortune magazine article in 2003 called, quote, the shabby side of the street about Gruntel, which describes it as like an open criminal organization. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just like uh, uh, basically they talked about how like throughout the 80s and 90s, brokers were charged with insider trading and securities fraud. They paid like 750K to settle a sex harassment lawsuit. Crime arbitrage. Yeah. (laughs) They settled a sex harassment lawsuit. Um, And just from this Fortune article, uh, the firm's uh, nepotistic roots flowered under uh, Howard Silverman, who ran Gruntel with an iron fist from 74 to 95. That's the whole time Steve Cohen was there. Uh, until Silverman's ouster, his two sons operated a company that cleared all the trading for Gruntel on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, while a son of Edward Bow, Silverman's deputy, handled all the Amex floor business. And the point of this is, like, every trade that Gruntel makes, you know, whoever executes it collects a commission on it. So the point is his sons are running uh, uh, the company that collects all of these commissions. <laughs> so it's, like, kind of a clear conflict of interest there. Um and the point is, uh, 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 did, did they go down because some of the employees got kind of uh, disgruntled? <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> the point was essentially like where, you know, the top management is so clearly like playing for their own book. They're not really going to watch what you're doing. So this kind of uh, uh, culture of insider trading and also just straight up embezzlement kind of flourishes like one other quote from this fortune article three top managers in the back office known as the cage were found to have been siphoning money to personal accounts for a decade uh, bow himself the deputy went to prison for diverting dividends from Gruntel's quote dead accounts by law they were supposed to go to the state to falsely boost the firm's net profits all told 14 million dollars over 10 years was in 
embezzled. And these are the dormant accounts of dead customers (laughs) that uh, top management was raiding (laughs) and embezzling $14 million from. And, you know, so it's just like that kind of corporate environment that Steve Cohen makes his bones in and grows up in, you know, Gruntle and Co. And so a childhood friend of his was running the options division. Um, He's uh, working at... Matthew McConaughey also, like... Yeah, took him out to lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Did coke and started pounding on his chest. (laughs) What if that scene in uh, Wolf of Wall Street was like, they just had the cameras on and Matthew Oh, it's a Wolf of Wall Street reference? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Wolf of Wall Street reference. Good one. Uh, And then just like in between takes, like Matthew McConaughey just started doing coke and pounding on his chest while humming. And you're like, we'll keep that in. We'll say it was prop coke. Stealing billions of dollars from a Malaysian sovereign wealth fund. Wolf of Wall Street reference. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so, you know, and so uh, Gruntle at this time starts doing proprietary trading, you know, trading their own money, trading their own book. Um, And so uh, Stephen A. Cohen is working at Gruntle's prop trading desk. Uh, He works under his childhood friend who sets up this deal where the team keeps like 50% of the profits they make. And throughout the 1980s, uh, Steve Cohen, incidentally, is married in 1979, but throughout the 1980s, he's riding this mergers and acquisitions wave we mentioned. You know, all these hostile takeovers, all this insider trading going on where people keep getting tipped off right before mergers and acquisitions happen. So he's making a lot of money riding, you know, these corporate raiders and junk bonds and, and stuff uh, to the point where, like, by the early 80s, he's making about 5 to $10 million a year. Um, according to Black Edge, he is a, quote, disengaged father who would come home from work in a, quote, irritable state and argue with his wife about money <laughs> and how people are, like, ripping him off. Like, th- another thing you'll see with Steve Cohen, and he's, like, a billionaire who's unsurprisingly extremely cheap and constantly <laughs> thinks people are, like, ripping him off or whatever the case may be. Uh, his ex-wife said his children were afraid of him. <laughs> he had uh, two children with his first wife. Um, but basically, the point is, you know, he's riding this M&A uh, mergers and acquisitions wave to the point where by the 1980, by 1985, Steve Cohen negotiates a deal for his own group within the firm where basically he gets to hire and fire traders who work under him. He gets to decide their compensation structure and he gets to keep 60 percent of their profits. So it's like, you know, they get like 30 percent of their profits, whereas he gets, you know, 60 percent of the group's profits. So like half of all the money they make goes directly back to him. So it's, you know, it, it is pretty nice the way, you know, like really at the heart of finance capitalism, we can best replicate the <laughs> exploitative structures of capitalism. <laughs> um, but uh I guess what I wanted to emphasize was by 1985 at the latest, he is absolutely balls deep in insider trading (laughs) and he would stay that way for his entire life and career. Um, And we know this from the book Black Edge. Uh, uh, By 1985, the SEC has an investigation into him. Basically, in December 1985, uh, Steve Cohen calls his brother Donald and tells him to buy RCA stock, which was then the parent company of um, NBC. Uh, Just so happens, six days later, General Electric announces a takeover. Cohen makes about $20 million profit on this trade. And uh, his ex... uh, uh, You can buy a lot of VCRs with that. (laughs) (laughs) 
his, uh, his first wife said that he later told her a former Wharton classmate working for Drexel under Michael Milken actually gave him this tip. So interestingly enough, he actually made about $20 million off somebody involved in the Michael Milken insider <laughs> trading <laughs> ring. So, you know. And I uh, just like that they're looking out for their friends. Yeah. And so there's this SEC investigation. Apparently they also... That's number one. <laughs> Uh, there's this SEC investigation where they subpoena him and he takes the... Flying uh, airplanes into the World Trade Center? That's okay. <laughs> Thank you, Tom Friedman. That's the video you watch when you join Cantor Fitzgerald. <laughs> uh, so the SEC looks into Stephen A. Cohen's uh, trading. They also look at suspicious transactions on Union Carbide, General Foods, Warner Communications. Uh, the SEC says, according to the book, quote, a group of people connected to Cohen had acquired shares of all three stocks as well as RCA right before public announcements had driven the prices higher, unquote. <laughs> so the SEC subpoenas him. He comes in for a deposition. He pleads the Fifth Amendment. And then the investigation just doesn't really go anywhere. They don't have enough evidence. But it is just something where it's like by 1985 at the latest, he was balls deep in this strategy. You mean he wasn't stuck in a situation like, say, someone who has a public attorney and uh, is uh, wrongfully arrested for something they didn't do and they can't afford to go to trial and so they have to plead guilty? No, Andy. Our He's innocent until proven guilty. I will say, if you uh, want to, to read all of the best defenses of the rights of the accused against prosecutors, just open up a Forbes or a Fortune article about <laughs> anyone accused of insider trading, <laughs> because you will hear uh, really everything you should be hearing in every other court case. <laughs> Um, oh, I did want to mention, we were talking about the inaccuracies in billions, and I just wanted to point out uh, the fact that uh, Preet Bharara gets pissed on is totally accurate. <laughs> 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 He's into BDSM. <laughs> I imagine that's how some insider trading goes down, though. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, I was pissing on this guy who said that uh, the quarterly earnings are just off. <laughs> My safe word is uh, NVIDIA's orders for this quarter. <laughs> uh, but so what happens is, you know, 85, he's got his own group at Gruntle, Stephen Cohen does, and uh, 88, he gets divorced from Aww. his first wife. Uh, he goes through a year-and-a-half-long legal battle. Um, at this time, he claims a net worth of $16.9 million. Don't know how accurate that is. Claims that in court filings. He gives his first wife the apartment he claims that's worth 2.8 million he gives her a million in cash he gives her 4000 a month for the two kids they have but just an interesting little steve cohen anecdote from this time is the day after he signs the final spousal agreement with his first wife he shows up to work and he turns to his traders and said uh, from the book quote i just got ripped off by my wife i'm going to make it all back by cutting your payouts <laughs> 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 and uh, he apparently made over $4 million that year, and he gave his wife uh, less than that. <laughs> uh, and so apparently, he, like I said, he was taking 60% of the group's profits. Uh, he cuts all their payments by 5%. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, nice guy. Um, but so, you know, he's working for Gruntle until 1992. He comes up with the idea of striking off on his own. You know, Gruntle's kind of... 
there's a lot of bureaucracy. It's obviously institutionally corrupt, and he's got the idea like he knows how to do this shit. He can do it better on his own. Uh, so in 1992, uh, he founds SAC Capital. Okay, cut the joke where earlier I make the disgruntled joke. Now pause. I guess you could say he was pretty disgruntled. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, it. <laughs> uh, the the point is, uh, he starts SAC in 1992. He has about 23 million dollars in capital. About 10 million of that's his own. Uh, and that's the thing. Like his wife, his first wife would later sue him for hiding assets from her during the divorce. So unsurprisingly, I think this 16.9 million number might be a little low. But regardless, he's a multimillionaire from just riding all these mergers and acquisitions, stock market boom in the 80s, and he strikes out on his own. So, you know, 23 million capital, about 10 million his own, um, and the others comes from, like, traders, friends, investors, uh, connections he's made, uh, nine employees to start, and they're basically doing large-scale day trading. And interestingly enough, he hires early on a guy named Kenny Lissick, who's a former Gruntle stock trader, uh, who had, like, was much more personal. Cohen's more of an introverted guy. He had, like, a lot of direct relationships with people at Goldman, Merrill Lynch, uh, eventually, Kenny Lessig would be brought in and made a 20% general partner. But Kenny Lessig's important because essentially Kenny Lessig starts getting the firm access and early looks at market-moving institutional research papers. <laughs> like, for example, you know, he, we mentioned these relations at Merrill Lynch. If Merrill Lynch is going to put out a research paper on a stock that might have a buy-or-sell recommendation, <laughs> Merrill Lynch will call the hedge fund first and be like, hey, before we put this out publicly, we're about to release this sell <laughs> re recommendation, you know? So, of course, like, it's shooting fish in a barrel to make money if you get the first yeah, call like this. an idiot could make money <laughs> off of this. So, <laughs> a guy who says Fight Club reference could make money <laughs> off this. So, Merrill Lynch is just like, hey, uh, uh, just doing the courtesy insider trading call <laughs> to let you know uh, how you can break the law and make a lot of money. <laughs> Apparently, this shit is legal, which blows my mind. <laughs> But uh, so oh, sort of like congressional insider trading. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so and also partly why he does this is an important shift that takes place in the industry is uh, um, up until this time, the big bank or the brokerages like Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, uh, Lehman Brothers, they were their number one clients were these institutional like fidelity kind of major retirement account holders. Uh, those were like the number one first call clients. But the thing is, those people... That's number one. <laughs> those people just kind of like hold their money dormant, you know? And so in the 90s, particularly the late 90s, hedge funds really become dominant on Wall Street. And hedge funds are doing an insane volume of transactions every day, whereas like Fidelity is just kind of like very sedate in comparison. So Fidelity might have a ton more money invested, but because they are not doing these, you know, thousands or even millions of transactions every day, they um, are not, you know, the, the, the book gives the example of at the time Goldman Sachs makes like a six cent commission. I think this is 98 on each uh, share they buy or sell for a client. So if he's doing, you know, thousands of those every day, whereas Fidelity is just much more sedate, well, he's making Goldman and whoever else a lot more money. So, of course, he can leverage that and be like, hey, I'm paying you all these commissions. I want first call on all research reports, all analyst mm -hmm. recommendations, all that shit. So that's how hedge funds kind of become the dominant players in the market and set up this massive, you know, even the part that's, that's legal is insane. <laughs> and, you know, it just makes a joke out of the idea that we have a fair financial market, you know. 
Um, but, you know, Kenny Lessig gets him all this, and uh, then he pushes him out in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess I did want to mention, uh, uh, in 1992, Stephen A. Cohen gets married for the second time, and according to the New York Post, he appears on sort of a daytime Geraldo-style talk show called The Christina Show <laughs> with his second wife. And the, the, the subject of the episode is, like, second wife's complaining who whose husbands are still, like, messing around <laughs> with their first wives. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's very unfortunate. If a listener has this tape, the New York Post posted it, but then it, it got taken offline. If a listener has this tape, please send it to me because I'd like to play some of it. But... Uh, but so basically, uh, according to the New York Post, um, Cohen's second wife, Alex, told the studio audience, before we got engaged, we broke up and he was still sleeping with her. <laughs> and then this, promo- uh, this resulted in a uh, lot of ahs from the audience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just that kind of like, Jerry, Jerry. <laughs> Which, like, I don't know, it's just kind of funny to imagine this, like, master of the universe squirming, <laughs> like, <laughs> some fucking white trash daytime talk show audience booing him for a Yeah, like he goes on, like, Ricky Lake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was a billionaire <laughs> portfolio manager. <laughs> Steve Co. Uh, and now we're going to bring out the midget clan members. <laughs> Uh, but so, you know, uh, the, the point, hey, I'm only a little bit racist. <laughs> uh, the point is like Steve Cohen is like, uh, notoriously like secretive, quiet guy. So people speculated like this showed that his second wife had like complete control over him where she could like push him to appear on this trashy daytime show <laughs> in 1992 and, uh, you know, and admit that, uh, early on while they were dating, he was still sleeping with his ex-wife. So uh, maybe that was a sex game. <laughs> it was like there his his kink was humiliation. Maybe he's in the fandom. Let's yeah yeah yeah. Let's not kink shame him. That's true. I don't want to. And you know, just because they're Ku Klux Klan members doesn't mean I should use the pejorative midget. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What if that's how we get canceled? <laughs> Um, but you know, so if you have this tape, let me know, but it is just kind of interesting where like the excuse he uses to push the partner, Kenny Lessig, who got him all these connections and really the firm quadrupled in growth in three years. So I think Kenny Lessig, like, of course, by having all these connections to Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch is like how you grew. Mm -hmm. And then of course he pushes this guy out in October, 1997 by accusing him of trying to instigate an affair with his wife. Uh, and interestingly enough, Kenny Lessig had lost 100 pounds and was recovering from a life-threatening illness at the time. <laughs> so it's just like a completely absurd charge. <laughs> but Stephen A. Cohen, like being the vindictive guy he is, also called around to basically every firm on Wall Street and said, you cannot do business with us if you hire this guy. I mean, maybe he lost 100 pounds and got extra fuckable. <laughs> <laughs> lost 100 pounds from fucking too much. <laughs> The ultimate calorie burning <laughs> workout. Um, but so I guess where uh, where I had I had a uh, life threatening illness. It was uh, needs pussyitis. Uh, but your wife, man, she is an angel. She cured me. Man, your wife pissed all over me. <laughs> <laughs> 
We made Preet Bharara watch. <laughs> Is that why she ran out? <laughs> Preet Bharara uh, started the case because he was watching SAC traders have sex. And <laughs> they kept talking about illegal insider trading. Uh, they just couldn't shut up about it. Um, but so uh, just to kind of like move on to, you know, the, the high flying 90s and the 2000s in particular is where hedge funds become the dominant players on Wall Street. We've mentioned this volume of order flow uh, uh, nonsense, but an interesting thing happens where, you know, 99 uh, SAC organizes their traders into specialties where they'll have like a healthcare group, an energy group, etc. instead of just general purpose speculators. And what's interesting is, according to the book Black Edge, they start hiring traders um, partially based on personal connections they have to people working at various public companies. Mm -hmm. The example they give is, like, it's noted approvingly in a hiring file if a potential hire had a summer rental in the Hamptons with an exec at an internet company. So, like, these kinds of personal connections are all, like, part of what will get you in the door. So, it's like... It's very much institutionally based around insider trading, which it's like, how else huh. are you going to... We, we didn't really cover this in our hiring episode. <laughs> yeah. That we're recording next. Yes. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, check out... <laughs> yeah, one addition to the hiring episode, if you're looking for a job on Wall Street, if you could just talk about how you like uh, have a bunch of friends who like get the quarterly reports early at Google... <laughs> Yeah, what's my greatest weakness? Uh, all the people I know who work at Facebook and know the uh, quarter three numbers before they're <laughs> released publicly. Do you know anyone who works at Facebook? I I have a Facebook. <laughs> You're hired. No, yeah. it's not. God, and we were talking about like uh, how these people are not that much smarter than us. Steve Cohen's emails are just riddled with typos. <laughs> the point where it's kind of weird, like, so they have this this trader named C.B. Lee who has, like, connections with Asian tech manufacturers. So he gets, he flies out to Asia. His job is to, like, get the numbers on, like, what kind of chip deliveries major companies are going to get before the public knows, you know, this kind of shit. And so C.B. Lee works for another trader who's, like, kind of hoarding that research. So Steve Cohen sends him an email and says, C.B. Lee has to submit reports directly to me. And this guy, like, complains. And then Steve Cohen sends him an email that I'm just going to quote on uh, that says, then quit, T-H-A-N, quit, <laughs> which means greater than quit. <laughs> Rules are the same for everybody. You know like, then time to move on, T-H-A-N. Why should outside people get CB ideas and not and me not? It's <laughs> wrong and needs to be corrected. I will be firm on this, and if no happy, then, T-H-A-N, life goes on. You then post it uh, on Facebook, uh, an inspirational image where it's like, the haters try to bring you down, but tomorrow's another day. <laughs> he handed the email with a beautiful mind reference. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this guy has like fucking terrible grammar and lexicon. And, you know, look, he's... Uh, well, let's not be ableist. Yeah, I know, I know. He, maybe he's dyslexic. I don't know. But <laughs> look, I'm not worth $12 billion, and I know the difference between then and then, okay? Maybe that's why you're not worth $12 billion. You know. <laughs> You just got to focus all of your mental energy on the <laughs> stock market. There's no, there's no time for you syntax. Do <laughs> <laughs> an IQ test. They do. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Smith. 
Yeah. Is it the IQ test? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. does the IQ test and his Robert private Smith equity. delivers an IQ test. They take if it's too high, they don't hire you. <laughs> you got to jettison the spelling of Mississippi from your brain if you want to make it on the <laughs> stock market. There's no room for that shit. <laughs> it's got to all be the Q4 numbers. <laughs> Kind of all be expect expected profit and loss I, for Microsoft. I, I need you to go and get me the numbers on Taiwanese semiconductor companies. <laughs> Can you do that? I don't care if you know the difference between then and then. <laughs> yeah. I need you to get me the numbers on Taiwanese semiconductors companies, but don't ask me to spell any of those words. <laughs> um, I, but I, it'd just be beautiful if they have like a terrible trade because they use the wrong there. <laughs> um but so uh moving right along to expert networks we we've mentioned them on this podcast before but like the book black edge gives the example of primary global research and others called gerson learman group and uh the idea uh the idea is that um gerson lehman group gets a 1.2 million dollar annual subscription fee from uh, sac capital and they let employees from public companies speak with sac traders uh, they get paid anywhere from like a thousand to five thousand an hour for their time, and uh, the interesting thing is, you know, of course, all these expert networks will have, you know, little cover your ass contracts where it's like, don't discuss any illegal non-public information, <laughs> but they will also like, uh, according to the Frontline Doc to Catch a Trader, they have like one of these, uh, I think a VP at one of these companies on like an FBI wiretap talking about like, yeah, just like look up the uh, experts who like the traders will call back several months later because they're likely to have like the most valuable information. <laughs> what if you're one of what if you're one of the employees at the company and you just don't know how this works and they think that wow, they really want to talk to me and just give me 1200 an hour? <laughs> well, and that's seriously. So like, hey, um, so so what's up? <laughs> so what's new with you? <laughs> we never really talk. Yeah. Why has it been 2 weeks since we talked though? So I went out on that date with your sister uh, like four months ago and, you know, I asked if we'd go on a second date, but she said like she's really not looking for a relationship right now. And <laughs> then I just saw her like with this guy, like he's just on the train and it looked like they were in it. What the fuck, dude? The trader is just like actively doing cocaine while, you, while you're <laughs> while you're just talking about nothing. <laughs> it's the guy at the company. <laughs> I'm just imagining you like pay a thousand bucks an hour and then you just think you're on a phone sex line. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you wearing? <laughs> my, my work uniform at Google? Don't you want to um, know the Q4 numbers? A <laughs> uh, uh, hoodie? <laughs> a shirt? <laughs> I just don't know how this works. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but the point is, like, you know, Steve mentioned there, like, a lot of times, obviously, a stock trader will know what the illegal line is, but an employee at a public company will very often not. So mm -hmm. they'll just kind of, like, not know what you're not supposed to say to oh, yeah. a public trader. So it's like, you know, and it's very easy, like, if you have them on the phone for an hour to kind of steer them to places they shouldn't be talking about. And, um, you know, so there's like a lot of different ways that they'll do insider trading. One thing I found interesting is that SAC was probably made money on the insider trade that Martha Stewart got charged with. <laughs> <laughs> like just according to the book, um, uh, it was this company called Imclone Systems. They had a cancer drug disapproved. And, you know, this, the chairman told Martha Stewart before it was publicly announced 
but 24 hours before the the public announcement, before Martha Stewart called him, an SAC trader called him, <laughs> trying to find out what was going on. <laughs> so you know they have like a lot of different networks at the firm working in different places, and partly um, why Steve Cohen is able to shield himself is he will. He has all these different trading groups, and he will request they give him his trading ideas with uh, a scale of 1 to 10 of how certain they are. So obviously, if a trader says, I'm 9 or 10 out of 10 certain, something's going to happen. Well, you can assume they probably have inside information, but as long as you don't actually know they have inside information, you have plausible deniability. And apparently, like according to Frontline, criminal negligence doesn't really apply to insider trade or financial ma ma manipulation of the like. Mm. Um, but so I guess to just like uh, move on to like what happens to Steve Cohen though I guess I should mention um, another thing these hedge funds will do is um, they'll set up independent uh, research firms independent research firms that like make buy and sell uh, recommendations for stocks start popping up but these various hedge funds will have like multi-million dollar short campaigns against companies so it's very easy for them to just pay an independent research firm to like put out a paper saying, hey, sell this. This is a giant Ponzi scheme, you know? Mm -hmm. So they'll push these, like, fraudulent independent research papers on, like, companies they've got a massive short position against. And there's just a ton of different little tricks that we can go through, some of which are legal, some of which are not, that, you know, I think really game and turn the fucking markets into a casino. Mm -hmm. um, and they end up, like, not even... <laughs> this is, they're an enemy even of corporate America. Right. Because like, you could have a legitimately good quarter... And no matter how good your numbers look, if traders simply want, they just happen to have been short on your stock, <laughs> uh, there are still ways to game it to where you could actually have like a dip. Because like, oh, well, the analysts were t like the analysts were essentially told they should expect like something really good to happen. Mm -hmm. And so they have very high expectations. The company has still a strong quarter, but it didn't quite meet it. And then people just dump your stock. <laughs> Because they're they're told to believe that like oh that's a that's an omen of like right yeah of bad of more bad activity at the company later on mm. right and, and so essentially where the trouble comes is uh, Steve Cohen and SAC Capital is insider trading so blatantly like if you watch the To Catch a Trader <laughs> uh, Frontline documentary they interview a Fox Business guy who says if you ask people on Wall Street if SAC does insider trading after they fall on the floor laughing, they will tell you yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, you know, they're they're so blatant. Like, there's a New York Post story in 2009, the one where um, they reveal the uh, tape of him going on the Christina show or whatever. Mm -hmm. The story also says, quote, Meanwhile, there were reports out yesterday that Cohen managed to get a Reuters story about alleged insider trading at SAC Capital uh, killed after Cohen complained to the CEO of Thomas Reuters Market Division. <laughs> so, you know, like there's all these like rumors and uh, press reports that Thompson he's getting. Thomson Reuters? Yeah, Thomson Reuters. Um, these rumors, these press reports is getting spiked, and this all culminates in 2013. The SEC um, charges him with failure to supervise. Like, they can't get him dead to rights on insider trading, so they say he's failing to oversee a culture that uh, doesn't, that has compliance against insider trading. And again, if you watch the front line, they have, like, this deposition where, like, people ask him, ask Steve Cohen, you know, like, so what does your uh, employee handbook say about insider trading? And he's just like, I don't recall. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> you know. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> just the 
the usual uh, uh, answers to a deposition. Do it. Um, but uh, I wanted to just talk about the two cases that he's actually charged with. So uh, we should mention, you know, uh, drug trials. This is another common area for this shit where, like, you know, they'll spend all this money trying to get a drug approved. And then if they know in advance how the drug trial went, if the thing works or if they know in advance if the FDA is going to approve the thing, you can make a lot of money on that. So there's an Alzheimer's drug uh, that they make. Uh, oh, I, I guess one other illustrative st statistic um, from the book is that in 2005, 10% of American doctors had pa had paid ties to Wall Street. <laughs> so, you know, like a lot of doctors will like make a significant amount of extra money by just being like, you know, hey, here's what this drug is going to do. Sometimes it's legal. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's actual like trial results. Um, but so the two cases that they actually get them on are like Dell Computer uh, which is uh, a trader at SAC sends an email to Steve Cohen saying, hey, Dell Computer's going to have a bad quarter. Uh, and then he shorts it, and then his lawyers argue that he didn't actually see this email, you know. But then the other one is this uh, Alzheimer's drug. Elon and Wyeth are two different companies that team up to try to trial an Alzheimer's drug. An SAC trader named Matthew Martoma uh, manages to like link up with one of the doctors, I think the, the lead doctor on this trial, and get the PowerPoint presentation of the trial results before anyone else does. So essentially, SAC has a giant like um, bullish position on these companies and then he gets this PowerPoint and within a week they move to a massive short position. <laughs> so it's actually uh, uh, apparently the largest insider trade that they've actually tried to convict in history, which is they, I think Parit Barara says they made a $275 million profit on this, you know, massive uh, turnaround short against these Alzheimer's drugs. PowerPoint um, is, has such like a weird place in our culture because it's just this dumb slideshow program but like a lot of the snowden leaks uh that made it public are just these powerpoint slides from like the um you know the the inside of um the nsa where it's like how we can use the techniques of magicians to <laughs> trick people and then it's like clip art of a magician holding some cards and a wand <laughs> Clip art of a magician making some bodies disappear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So imagine like this PowerPoint that they got was like, why this Alzheimer's drug is uh, not effective in market trials. And then it's like clip art of a, a grave and a coffin with a cross on it. <laughs> the text is flying in from the sides. <laughs> yeah. So it's, whoever it's made it is like, yes. <laughs> the analyst is like, oh, yeah, that means we got a short. You think we should remove the dancing old man with the speech bubble that says, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> is this an Applebee's? <laughs> like, look, I know you like using clip art, but I think it might be a little insensitive here. Well, this isn't going to go public, is it? No one's going to see this. <laughs> My brain functions are shutting down, and I just shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> I just tried to fuck my daughter because I thought she was my wife. <laughs> I don't think any of this was necessary in uh, reporting stage two clinical trial results. <laughs> N equals 258. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so he gets this advanced look at these uh, PowerPoint presentations. And um, interestingly enough, essentially what happens is 
Um, Matthew Martoma is the trader who gets the PowerPoints, and then there's another trader called Michael Steinberg, wh who was one of Steve Cohen's like main deputies. So um, the U.S. attorney at the time for the Southern District was Preet Bharara. He charges both of these people. Matthew Martoma is the only guy who really does hard time. He gets a nine-year sentence, and it's interesting where, according to the book Black Edge, they were hoping either Michael Steinberg or Matthew Martoma would flip and turn on Steve Cohen. And you would usually expect with like these Wall Street cases, it's not like these are fucking mobsters, you know, like some FBI agent in the book says like, yeah, Wall Street people flip on each other all the time. They're most <laughs> like mercenary assholes in the world. <laughs> you know, they have no loyalty. They'll give up their best friend in a second, you know. <laughs> but for whatever reason, Matthew Martoma eats a nine year federal sentence and doesn't snitch on Steve Cohen. Because essentially the evidence is he gets this PowerPoint presentation. He immediately calls Steve Cohen. And for some reason, they move to a massive short position immediately after that. And so it's hard. Uh, prosecutors, for whatever reason, decide they can't establish beyond a reasonable doubt that Steve Cohen insider traded without Matthew Martoma's testimony. And he refuses to flip. He eats this nine-year sentence. And you have to imagine, you know, Steve Cohen's taking care of him. Oh, yeah. Because if he's not, that is the biggest dick move to like <laughs> eat a, eat a nine-year federal sentence for a billionaire, and he doesn't even pay your kids' college or whatever the case may be. Um, and interestingly enough, the other deputy, Michael Steinberg, has since he got sentenced as well, but he's since been turned loose because, uh, according to the New York Post, an appeals court has really narrowed the ability of people to get nailed on insider trading. Essentially, like now, uh, they have to show that an individual who supplied a tip sought personal gain or intended to confer benefit to someone else. So it's like there's a really tough legal standard for insider trading now, which is, you know, good because it's not like it's pervasive or <laughs> all-encompassing. <laughs> we were even talking before this started, like... Uh, there was the new argument is because insider trading is so pervasive, you'll get these arguments. Insider trading should be legal. Like Dylan Matthews was, is he's now with with Vox. He was then with you know Wonk Blog, Ezra Klein's other thing, yeah. and he wrote some article about how insider trading should be legal back in 2013 when these charges were announced. And he just quotes some like George Mason University economist, <laughs> who's of course on the Koch brothers payroll. Talking about, like, if Enron, if insider trading was legal, Enron wouldn't be as bad because somebody would insider trade on it. <laughs> That's the most insane thing. <laughs> thing. It's like, it, maybe the argument should be that books should be open and we yes. shouldn't have this, like, secretive... Uh, right. Like, I mean, then they would say, like, oh, then they can't compete. And it's like, well, what if, you know, we didn't have an economy based on cutthroat competition where billions of dollars are at stake over nothing i think this is the way that it actually isn't exactly like gambling because if you legalize gambling which i think i think overall would be a, like a good thing yeah um so obviously they're still Come going down to, would need another sponsor they're 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 still going to be they're like basically i think the reasoning they're trying to shoot for is there's always going to be a few people who abuse the system so you should take this like p thing that people are willing that doesn't like necessarily hurt everyone, but it does hurt a few people and then just treat the people or in this case, catch the people who really abuse the system somehow. Though the state lottery really should be ended <laughs> where they like, like, Oh, well we need it to fund schools by just soaking desperate people. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I, I love all those ads where they uh, uh, blissfully sell utopia to the most desperate people <laughs> <Yeah>. on the planet. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> By like promising it's them a statistical impossibility. <laughs> I think com- I think comparing comparing what Wall Street traders do to exactly what gambling is mm-hmm. is doesn't exactly work for this reason, basically. Yeah, because they they work on inside information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where uh, it's like, I mean. There's nothing you can know about. Well, you can count cards, I guess, but there's nothing you can really know without <laughs> clear, clear cut. Yes, he did it. Collusion. If you're playing poker or something. Yeah, yeah it's it's more like a f- if a friend of the casino comes in. Um, uh, yeah, or tells you, you everyone else's hands. House of Mirrors or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so pre Barrara, he can't get these two traders to flip, so he settles for uh, SAC Capital makes a guilty plea. They pay 1.8 billion in fines. It's really 1.2 billion since he includes 600 million he already paid to the SEC. I mean, what's 600 million dollars between? <laughs> <laughs> but it is kind of funny where it's like the exact same thing with the. This is why it is the spiritual sequel to the Michael Milken episode because the Milken episode was he paid almost a billion and he's worth like three billion. Cohen pays a billion or almost two billion and he's worth 12 billion (laughs) so it's like you know you become a multi-billionaire on just uh, totally all-pervasive criminal activity and if you get to enough of a level where you're connected enough your punishment is you give some of that back and you know I'm sure they want it to get him into prison it just didn't happen with the evidence but uh he also shuts down his hedge fund for two years <laughs> and can only trade his own money for two years uh and that's from january january 2016 to january 2018 so he, he can has only inside trade his money for <laughs> two years well, keep, keeping in mind that like if he's running a hedge fund the way he's making money is off commit or is yeah off, i guess yeah uh fees yes um which is also why hedge funds and mutual funds are. I mean, I guess if they're insider trading, then yeah, go ahead and park your money there. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like if it's someone who can't beat the market and they're charging a fee, you're they're just making their money off of the fee. You're, they're yeah, you're going to your your gain as an outside investor is going to be whatever you could have made as index fund, as index fund investor minus the fee. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but um. Essentially, he can only, for two years, invest his own money, which is $10 billion. (laughs) So he's doing just fine. And uh, they've since renamed it. Again, the best strategy when you get in trouble is rename your firm. It is now called Point72 Asset Management. It has recently reopened to the public. According to their Wikipedia, they've... uh, they hired Palantir Technologies, Peter Thiel's company, (laughs) to do internal... uh, a new software tool for internal compliance and surveillance <laughs> because they on their Wikipedia, they try to talk up how much like crackdown on insider trading they've done <laughs> since this stuff. But, you know, well, anyone can edit that. So, you know, it's probably true. <laughs> oh, uh, Andy, they, um, I looked up point 72 and they have some open jobs. Oh yeah. Well, uh, what, yeah. what, what kind of work? Uh, let's see. Let's, well, they have quantitative research engineer, you know, New York, ha- you yeah. know how I, I bet that they do this, actually? Is that if you're seeing the public listing, you already don't get the job. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, they have some other things. Uh, let's see. Research analyst, global macro. Uh-huh. Hmm. London. Well, oh, it's in London. Okay. Are you willing to relocate? Uh, Are you willing to do I've the I've heard the housing's kind of expensive in London. <laughs> it can be a venture portfolio operations associate. Oh, you didn't mention that part. Okay. 
That's in New York, actually. You you could be the guy who defends them against sexual harassment lawsuits. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's an internship. Yeah. In Hong Kong. Oh. Yeah. Twenty twenty academic summer internship. Well, um, you went to you went to college at one point. I did. I I could get that unpaid job. Yeah. I guess the the last thing to mention with point seventy two asset management, according to its website, it's now got about. 13.5 billion assets under management as of April 2019. It's taking public money again. It's got Wait, what's he worth again? Uh like 12.8. So it's got a little more than his net yes. worth in assets. Yes. Well, that's how you know he's really serving his customers. <laughs> it's pretty much just his family office. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh it's got 1400 employees now. Uh they've recently the SEC, you know, in one of those really vicious punishments, they approved his license to take public money again. <laughs> Uh, but I did want to mention before we uh, end this here, according to the New York Post and New York Times, they've faced a sexual harassment lawsuit as of February 2018. And just quoting from the New York Me Post. Me too is out of control. <laughs> according to the New York Post, an associate director named Lauren Boner, Bonner, <laughs> well, there's the problem, uh, says male executives at Point 72 Asset Management uh, call female workers, quote, sweetheart and girls, openly comment on their looks, brag about refusing to hire and promote, quote, emotional women, and host, quote, no girls allowed meetings. <laughs> Which, you know what, dudes rock. <laughs> They're just channeling their inner Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> I'm just imagining taking over one of the conference rooms and setting up a giant pillow fort <laughs> with, like, a no girls allowed sign written in crayon. <laughs> <laughs> Look, before we dive into NVIDIA this quarter, <laughs> I want to get the rules <laughs> Just to imagine, like, one of their female employees being like, I'm going to see what they're really doing there. And she, like, just, like, pu slightly pushes the door open, and they're all sucking each other off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she alleges that, according to the New York Post, she alleges that a company president had the word, quote, pussy scrawled across his whiteboard for weeks mocked a female exec as a dumb blonde and made another draft a PowerPoint presentation less than 48 hours after giving birth. Uh, you know, so the kind of the kind of thing that flies at a podcast, but not when you're doing <laughs> endemic insider trading. <laughs> Uh, and I do like one other thing. This one's from the New York Times. Uh, the lawsuit describes a woman's leadership forum. Cohen hosted a woman's leadership forum. Wow, woke. In, so woke. In October 2016 at his 35,000 square foot mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut, one of the main speakers was a psychiatrist and Fox News contributor who, according to the lawsuit, described Hillary Clinton as, quote, an accomplished man's wife. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, that that sex harassment lawsuit is still working its way through the courts. But, you know, Andy uh, is uh, hoping to, to work there. So we're, we're not going <laughs> to badmouth SAC or point seventy two asset management. Uh, yeah, too if anyone much. has any inside tips on getting a job at SEC. Point seventy two. Yeah. Point seventy two. Yeah. Want to be operations associate? Oh, no, you're yeah. going for the internship. Um, I'm going for whatever one I can get inside information on <laughs> and shorting the rest. I'd just like to say this entire episode has been a boiler room reference. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, hey, we'll see uh, if Stephen A. Cohen is able to repair his reputation. Uh, Yogi wasn't here, so I made it through the episode without one Stephen A. Smith impression. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm hey. so sorry. I'm whatever. <laughs> 
Uh, but uh, uh, check us out on the premium. We'll be talking about uh, the job market, how to get a job, strategies for that. And uh, we'll be back next week with uh, more billionaires. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean McCarthy. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. All right. Have a good night. See you next week. Bye. Bye.